You are now listening to Trillionaires, a race ahead. Great recession did not affect everyone in the same way. A new report shows that the wealth gap between whites, blacks, and Hispanics are the widest they've been since the government started keeping track 25 years ago. What's good, everybody? Welcome to Trillionaires, a race ahead, a podcast that'll explore how racism, politics, and economics all contribute to the racial wealth divide in America. I'm your host, Danny Blue, and thank you so much for tuning in to this jam-packed episode two. Before we get the show started, I just want to do some brief housekeeping. If you haven't already, please be sure to give us a follow at Trillionaires Pod to stay up to date with everything show-related. Secondly, if you listen on Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave us a five-star rating and review. Tell us what you think of the show, um, any suggestions that you might have, any topics that you'd like us to explore in more detail. Leave that feedback below, or you can reach out to us on our Instagram page at Pod. Now that we got that out the way, let's get into the episode. So episode two will explore how the South would go on to recreate a form of slavery after the Civil War with sharecropping and vagrancy laws, it will then build on how Northern Republicans would notice this and attempt to reconstruct the South with the passing of the 14th and 15th Amendments, and then expose how when faced with their backs against the wall, Southern Democrats would create a campaign of white supremacy that would largely lead to segregation and the creation of Jim Crow in the South. So. Turn on your thinking caps, strap into your cubicle, turn it up in your car. Let's get into episode two. Farmed and raised uh, cattle, chicken, cows, horses, hogs, cotton. That's what uh, my folks was doing. They was sharecroppers. In fact, just about everybody I know at that time was, you know, sharecroppers. So just imagine the elation that Blacks felt in 1865. The North had won the Civil War, the 13th Amendment designed, and they're officially free. Free to look for the family members and loved ones that they were separated from on the plantations. Free to start a new life in what they now know is America free from the brutality and torture of slavery and free to start to live and generate wealth and take care of themselves. Well, let's compare that with the devastation that the South and particularly the Southern economy felt as a result to the ending of the Civil War and the signing of the 13th Amendment. The Southern economy largely depended on slavery. The American economy as a whole largely depended on slavery. Cotton represented 61% of the United States exports. They were able to create a monopoly on the cotton industry largely due to their non-existent labor costs. So from an economic perspective, this is devastation at its highest. So what happens in the South after slavery? Blacks in the South had very little option, and the South would do everything it could to ensure that it remained that way, starting with the law. 
So we know that the 13th Amendment states that slavery is outlawed in the United States except as a punishment for a crime. Southerners would see this loophole and take advantage of it. In as early as 1866, the state of Virginia would pass what would be known as vagrancy laws. Vagrancy laws would criminalize any person that was either homeless, could not prove that they had employment, or prove that they owned land. Obviously, the majority of the 4 million newly freed black slaves fit into this vagrancy category. So let's take a step back here. The South knew it had an economy that was crumbling. The elite landowners at the time knew that in order for them to maintain and protect their wealth, they needed a way to get their labor force back. The 13th Amendment then stated that slavery is prohibited in all forms except for punishment for a crime. So why not create some laws, some phony laws, to criminalize these newly freed slaves. That way, we can still use their labor. Ingenious. Morally or humanely right? Hell no. But when you look at it from an economic perspective, it makes sense. Now let's tie back to episode one when I told you about the Maryland Doctrine of Exclusion. When blacks were brought over to the quote-unquote new world, the Maryland Doctrine of Excluded stated that, hey, listen, if we bring in them over here, it's for them to be a permanent underclass that's meant to work for our comfort and wealth building, nothing more. That set the foundation for how every policy at this time was written. The South didn't see those slaves as equal. They didn't see them as people. They saw them as labor and connected them to their wealth. By criminalizing them with vagrancy laws, with the extension of black codes, it allowed whites to see blacks in positions that confirm their racial superiority. But it was entirely made up. So now faced with vagrancy laws, blacks are left with even less options. They have to find employment quick or they're gonna be forced into prison and labeled as vagrants and separated from their families. So this creates sharecropping and tenant farming in the South. And sharecropping was a time period of which blacks would sign contracts with landowners of which the landowner would provide housing, credit for food, clothes, seed, tools, everything that one would need to grow a crop. They went into this agreement and the owner would be repaid by the former slave by sharing a portion of his crop in the next season. Usually the owner would get 50 to 70% on average. So what's bad about this? You're able to live, you're able to get some food for your family, you're able to grow your own crops and share in the profits off of them. What could be so bad about that? Well, just think about it this way. The landowner controls the terms of the contract, which means he controls how much your crop is sold for. He controls the cost of your housing, 
the tools, the seed, the food, all that. So oftentimes, blacks were left with little to no money during the next season, and many of them would owe money. Just think about that. At the end of the season, you you had just grown your crop. You think you're going to make a little bit of money off of it to be able to save and buy your own farm and buy your own house for your family one day. And the landowner comes over to you and says, actually, you lost a few hundred dollars. We're going to have to do this contract again. And you're going to have to work on my farm again and share uh, your profit with me again until your debt is owed. So you just worked a whole year for free. You didn't get paid. Yeah, you got a house. Your family isn't starving, but it's not what you deserve. So through vagrancy laws, blacks were forced into sharecropping in the South. They didn't have any other options. And you could say, well, Danny, why did they just leave? Like, why, why did they sign the contracts in the first place? Why not say, F you, landowner, I'm gone? Well, Southerners thought about that. And they put in place contract enforcement laws that made it illegal for you to breach a contract. It made it illegal for you to not sign an employment contract without having proof of employment elsewhere. So it was either you're going to sign it or we're going to put you in jail for being a vagrant. And once you're in jail, you're just going to be leased back out to that same farm through convict leasing and work for free on a chain gang. This is when the term chain gang originated from. States would literally lease out convicts to private corporations, coal miners, railroad companies, large-scale agricultural companies, private farmers. They would lease out their convicts, the majority of them being black, to these companies for as little as $5 a month. So from the Southerners' perspective, this is amazing. They are able to rebuild their economy, get their industries back moving by implementing a system of slavery by another name, but it only occurred because they were able to leverage the 13th Amendment and the loopholes that existed in it. So let me just briefly review why this is so important. When the South passed vagrancy laws and contract enforcement laws, making it illegal to be homeless or not prove that you had employment or own land, it would force blacks into a system of dependency on whites, which was the same thing as slavery. They didn't have opportunities as a whole, as a majority, to generate wealth and take care of themselves. They're forced to work on someone else's land, forced to work off this made-up debt, or they were criminalized. And the criminalization was probably more damaging because that's where the stereotypes that we still experience today come from. You hear presidential candidates talk about, oh, yeah, black people care much about uh, criminal justice reform, which implies that 
blacks as a whole are criminals. That's what that means. And it goes back to this time period after slavery where blacks would represent 90% of the prison population during the late 1800s, early 1900s. And by whites seeing them literally working on with balls and chains tied to them, building roads, building railroads, working in coal mines, working on farms, it was subconsciously create this stereotype that, oh, wow, black people sure are criminals, but what was their crime? Being vagrant, talking a little bit too loud in your presence, walking on the side of a railroad, petty crimes that carried large scale offenses. And they were damaging to how blacks are seen in America. So the North would go on to notice this system. And quite frankly, they were pissed. Like we, we, we beat y'all. We won the war. Y'all need to get in line. This is the United States. We not in this North South Confederacy Union stuff no more. So that would begin a period of um, radical presidential reconstruction in the South with the premise being that we're going to reconstruct the South and make it a united front with the North. During this time period, the 14th Amendment is passed. The Civil Rights Bill of 1866 is passed, which makes every person that is born in the U.S., including former slaves, citizens. It provides them with citizenship. The 15th Amendment is also passed during this time period, and that gave black men the right to vote. But there was a loophole in that as well. It said that you cannot prohibit a man from voting based purely on race, but you can prohibit it based on literacy tests, based on whether he's able to pay poll taxes or whether you ask him if his grandma, grandfather was able to vote as a qualification to vote. That's what, what happened in the South. But largely, after the passing of the 15th Amendment, Blacks would start to vote and participate in politics, um, with the majority of them being Republicans. With having the Black vote on their side, Republicans were going to dominate Congress during this Reconstruction period, which lasted from roughly 1867 um, to 1877. During this 10-year period of Reconstruction, the South began to make significant progress. Um, during Reconstruction, over 2,000 Blacks would hold public office during this time. The first Black governor in the U.S. is elected during this time in 1872. A fellow by the name of Pinckney Pitchback will become the first black governor of Louisiana. And just to set the importance in the, the true progression during this time, slavery had ended in 1865. You had a black governor less than six years later. And we wouldn't get our second black governor in the U.S. until the 1990s with Douglas Wilder. And most history books would tell you that Douglas Wilder was first, but in actuality it was Pinckney Pitchback. Um, in Louisiana. So this was a truly progressive time. And you can imagine that the South is now frustrated. They had just figured out a way to get the slavery system back, their economy back thriving. And now 
blacks are starting to enter into politics. It's the first uh, free public school is established during this time. Howard and Fisk universities are established during this reconstruction period. So this is a truly progressive time for the former slaves and their descendants. They're starting to see a light at the end of the tunnel. All of the, the brutality, all of the, the hard work that they did, they actually finally get a chance to participate. But it wouldn't last long. See, white elites were starting to get cast out of power. With blacks starting to be represented in government and Republicans starting to slowly take over uh, several Southern states, including North Carolina and Alabama, they were facing policies that would threaten their economic holds. So this threat of Black participation in politics and really their influence and appeal, especially the real issue with Blacks participating in politics in the South was they appealed to poor Southern whites because poor Southern whites were subject to the same vagrancy laws. Many of them were uh, sharecroppers and tenant farmers as well. With the primary difference is instead of being put into a system of debt where they would continuously work for free like blacks, they would they would be paid. Would they be paid what their crop was worth? No. But they were at least paid. They were in a slightly better position than the newly free slaves. But they were still poor. And those poor whites would align themselves with blacks and the Republicans. And when that happened, that became the tipping point. And it would help lead to the creation of the KKK, which its violence during this during this creation and during this period was largely politically driven. It was to intimidate blacks from voting. It was also to intimidate white Republicans from voting in the South. So it was largely a democratic organization. This would also lead to the creation of the white supremacist movement. Democrats and Southern elites saw blacks aligning with poor whites as the ultimate, no, this can't happen, because they outnumbered the elites. The working class outnumbers the elites, and that still remains true to this day. So Democrats and the Southern elites would leverage their influence in media and newspapers to uh, create this white supremacist campaign that sought to unite whites of all economic backgrounds in the hatred of black people. It was a campaign that tried to reinforce the idea that black people are different, that they're criminals, that black men are rapists and they're a threat. All these stereotypes about black people and specifically black men would be created to drive a separation between the poor whites and blacks. And remember, this was fairly easy for the Democrats in the South to do. They owned the newspapers, but they had also put in place laws that threw a lot of black men in jail. With 90% of your prison population being black, it's 
really easy to run propaganda campaigns that says all blacks are criminals. You see how the, how the game is played, how the wheels are turning? These stereotypes were created years before the white supremacist campaign. The foundation was laid. So all they had to do is make some cartoons, put out, put out more coverage about blacks being put in jail. They upped their violent crime coverage. And you still see this today. This is why I don't watch the news. I'm tired of seeing black men getting killed. I'm tired of seeing, oh, such and such robbed this store. Man, that's all a distraction. And it's all to continue this stereotype that we as a people are criminals. Whenever you talk about progress, whenever you talk about blacks not being killed by the police, the people supposed to protect them, there's always the black on black crime argument. As if white on white crime doesn't exist, as if Asian on Asian crime doesn't exist, as if Hispanic on Hispanic crime doesn't exist. So I just hope you hope you guys understanding the game that, that is being played. So the white supremacist movement is started and it works, obviously. And, and that movement during this reconstruction period lasted up into the early 1900s and it really hit its head in 1915 with the uh, releasing of the Birth of a Nation film. That was the biggest piece of propaganda that would um, continue the stereotypes of Blacks being threatening, um, of being rapists, of being aggressive, of being criminals. That's where this derived from, the beginning of the Reconstruction period when Blacks and whites would start to align and the South just wanted to remain the same. The South was purely conservative. And whenever someone says that they're conservative, it means that they don't want to change. And when your economy is and your livelihood was based on slavery, your wealth that you created is based on slavery, and you say that you're conservative, that means that you want to do anything that you can to keep me and people that look like me and poor people in a position of permanent dependency to you. That's what that means when someone says they're, they're conservative. I just want you to understand that. So now we lead on to the end of Reconstruction. What happened to end Reconstruction? Well, in 1873, there was a small economic depression. And we know that America is run by money. It's a capitalist country. So Northerners were largely paying the cost of federal troops being in the South, uh, public schools, the, the progression that's going on in the South was largely front on tax dollars. So when a depression happens, they start to lose their appetite towards equality. They start to lose their appetite towards protecting the uh, rights of blacks in the South. So Rutherford B. Hayes runs uh, for president as a Republican candidate in 1876 against Samuel Tilton, a conservative Democrat, and it's a split decision. Hayes wins slightly, but it's so close that several states require a recount. Congress steps in and says, we'll determine who the president will be. So they appoint 15 representatives, eight being Republicans, seven being Democrats to make a decision. Hayes ends up being the person appointed as president 
but it comes at a cost to Reconstruction. Democrats, through the white supremacist movement, through the KKK influence, are successful in curving the amount of blacks and Republicans that go and vote in the South. They start to get some representation back in Congress. So in order for them to support Hayes and his presidency, they say, if we're going to make you president, we need the federal government to get out of the South and we need you to allow us as individual states to have free reign. We don't want any federal influence. We want full control. Hayes agrees in something that was called the bargain of 1877. It would give full control of the South to Southern state officials and the Democrats. And that would end the period of reconstruction. Federal troops would be pulled out. And without those troops able to protect and enforce the laws that they had made, the Southern states were now free to fully restrict the freedoms of blacks with Jim Crow laws. That's how Jim Crow was started. Southern states were able to remain the same. They had made progress for 10 years, but it hurt so bad that they then reverted backwards with Jim Crow. Now they're given free reign to do whatever they want to keep blacks in a position of permanent servitude and dependency. Sometimes I tell you, I get sad about it. Just sad. Mm. Then again, I get mad. <laughs> so be a different kind of feeling. <laughs> um, but we didn't have no other choice. We had to do it. We didn't have no other choice. So just to, to, to paint a large-scale picture of how important this time period was, the period of time from slavery to the ending of Jim Crow was roughly another 100 years, from 1865 to, to 1965. So you have the majority of Blacks were sharecroppers and tenant farmers up into the 1940s. My great-great-grandfather being one in Spartanburg, South Carolina. Slavery lasted from 1619 to 1865, roughly 250 years. And we know that the value of that labor and the value of the slaves to the economy was roughly $50 trillion. If we were to look at this period of time of 100 years from the end of slavery to Jim Crow and compare the economic value of the resources that were extracted from Blacks during this time to slavery, you could argue that that was roughly another $15 trillion. Think about the amount of roads, the value of the roads, the value of the railroads, coal, iron ore, I mean, the steel industry was largely driven at this time through convict leasing. The industrialization of the South was largely made possible due to convict leasing. The cotton industry was able to rebound with sharecropping. So we're not talking about a small economic impact. The South's livelihood depended on the system of slavery by another name. So when we talk about reparations, this is the conversation. 
and this is why I wanted to start this show with these two fundamental episodes, because this sets the stage for why the wealth gap is what it is. 1965 was not that long ago. My mom was born in the 70s. So it was literally a generation ago for us. One generation has been able to grow up without quote unquote racism, but yet nothing has been done to repair or even repay the ills of this society that lasted for 350 years with slavery, sharecropping, convict leasing, and Jim Crow. These are the things that put us in a position where in 2019, the average black family owns only $17,000 of wealth, which is less a new car. It's pretty much the amount of wealth a black, a black family owns. When you compare it to the, the average white family owning $171,000 in wealth. And for the message to be, oh, why, 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 do you, why do you deserve reparations? You didn't, you weren't a slave. You don't even know anybody that was a slave. You didn't have to go through that. Why should we give you any money? Well, you should give me money because the way that I have to grow up as a black man in this society, the fear that I feel when I'm pulled over by the police and I know I didn't do anything wrong, but I know in the back of my mind that if I make one wrong move, I could lose my life. That fear, that trauma is real in the black community. And that trauma doesn't just come from my mom teaching me and my dad teaching me. It comes from their parents teaching them and their parents teaching them and so on and so forth. It comes from my ancestors feeling fear and trauma from if they said one thing out of line, if they were to do one thing wrong or not work hard enough, they would be beaten, brutalized, dehumanized for simply being black in America. That is why reparations are needed. Your experience in America is completely different from mine. You've got $171,000 in wealth on average. You're able to have your parents pay for school. Blacks as a whole have to take out loans. And what does that do? Keep us in a position where we're continuously paying off debt. Do you see the connection? Continuously paying off debt. Sharecroppers worked to continuously pay off debt so they couldn't get ahead. Now that I have to pay off debt, I'm now left from generating wealth on my own. That money can't go into a business. That money can't go into a home as a whole, as a majority. We don't have that extra capital. That's the importance of these two episodes is that we were systematically left out of ways to create wealth for ourselves, ways to create wealth for our families, ways to create wealth for our community as a whole.
the cycle has to end and the underlying subconscious of Americans has to change because we are living in a false reality, period. We're living in a false reality. I wanted to lay this foundation because it is the truth, one, and it ends every stereotype that has been made about blacks in America. It ends the, the, the crime stereotype. Blacks are the majority in prisons because you've made BS laws that have criminalized us. We're not criminals as a group more than you are. Oh, blacks are lazy. They don't want to work hard. They always want a handout. Well, actually, we worked a lot harder than you did, and you actually took the handout. Anyway, <laughs> that's all I got for episode two. I could go off on a tangent for another 30 minutes, uh, but I'm going to say that for future episodes. Um, if you haven't already, please be sure to follow at Trillionaires Pod. Um, connect with me at Brother Blue underscore. And um, be sure to leave a five-star rating review on Apple Podcasts, man. If you like the show, share with a friend, talk about it, start to have these conversations with your friends and families. And remember, black pride does not mean white hate. Love y'all. I'm the type that's gonna go get it. No kidding. Breaking down a switch in front of your villain. Sitting on the steps, feeling no feelings. Last night it was a cold killer. Gotta keep the devil in his hole, nigga. But you know how it go, nigga. I'm front line every time it's on, nigga.